Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Saturday, September 17th is Constitution Day. Happy Constitution Day, dear We the People listeners. This is the day that members of the Constitutional Convention signed the Constitution here in Philadelphia in 1787. I'm here at the National Constitution Center at 525 Arch Street in Philadelphia. 525 is the day the Constitutional Convention started. September 17th is when it ended. And as part of our Constitution Day week, we hosted a great panel called Originalism, a Matter of Interpretation. And I'm thrilled to share that conversation with you, uh, dear We the People listeners, today. Our panelists were Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine, Rich Lowry of The National Review, Stephen Maisie of The Economist, and Ilan Worman of Arizona State University. Enjoy the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and happy Constitution Day. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president of this wonderful institution. What a joy to welcome you back to our first in-person convening for a long time. Uh, and let's do, begin by inspiring ourselves with the National Constitution Center's mission statement. You, know, you can still do it by heart. It's been about two years since we've all been together in Kirby, here we go. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Beautiful, you can still do it as well as always. And it's so great to be back together, friends. It's been a wonderful Constitution Day. We started with an inspiring naturalization ceremony. We had a superb panel with Third Circuit judges on the methodologies of constitutional interpretation for middle school students who were sitting there and, and heard the methodologies in such a great way. And now we're just honored to have uh, four of America's great legal thinkers, uh, journalists and scholars, debating one of the central questions of our time at the Supreme Court. What is originalism and should judges adopt it? And I'm going to introduce them and we're gonna jump right in because you could not have four people better equipped to debate this crucially important question. Um, Rich Lowry is the editor of National Review and I'm so honored that, uh, and delighted that it was Rich's idea to have this great panel. He said, this is a crucial question. The Supreme Court is debating it. Why don't we co-host a panel about it? So it's been superb to work with the National Review Institute, including President Lindsey Craig and Miranda Melvin and the rest of their great team, thanks to them for their collaboration and making this possible, and so glad that Rich Lowry is here. He's editor-in-chief of National Review, and he writes for uh, Politico. He's a astute commentator and has uh, written many books, including most recently, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. It is an honor to welcome Emily Bazelon, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and lecturer in law and Truman Capote fellow at Yale Law School. She's co-host of Slate's great podcast, Political Gab Fest, and the author of two national bestsellers, including her most recent book, Charged, The Moment to Transform, The Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Uh, 
Ilan Worman is associate professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State. Um, he is the author of two books highly relevant to today's debate, A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism, and The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. He is the team leader of Team Conservative in our Constitution Drafting Project. <laughs> and Elon will return to the NCC on to Monday it. when the three team leaders will sit on this stage and propose five amendments to the Constitution. Friends, it just blew us all away that these three teams, with Elan's leadership and those of his colleagues, were able to actually agree on five constitutional amendments, and we will present them on Monday. So please join us Monday at noon to hear that amazing program. And Stephen Maisie is Supreme Court correspondent for The Economist and professor of political studies at Bard High School Early College in Manhattan. He's the author of American Justice 2015, the dramatic 10th term of the Roberts Court. Um, and it is such a joy to welcome all four of these great um, scholars and thinkers to the NCC. Rich, uh, you convened us, uh, so I'll start with you. Um, what is originalism and should judges adopt it? Sure. So first of all, let me say, in debates and discussions like this, one thing you always want is to kind of uh, do away with euphemism. You don't want, you know, the, the debate over terms is a big part of it. You want everyone not to give themselves the better part of the argument just based on word choice. This will never happen, though. You know, it's just human nature. And I'll, I'll give you a little example from, from my, my lived life at, at home. So my little daughter, not too long ago, came across the word stupid. She learned the word stupid. Of course, was quite delighted with herself. She was saying it all the time, which is sort of annoying. You know, stupid, stupid, stupid. So um, I, I took her aside and said, you know what? Why don't you instead say ill-considered? Right? So uh, I'm the editor of National Review. I had to try. But th this didn't work. Stupid, stupid, stupid. No, honey, say, say ill-considered. Stupid, stupid, stupid. So it went on like this. And this was around the same time she was getting potty trained. And my wife, in the excess of uh, caution, would have a little pad in her uh, pants just in case there was an accident. So one morning, she got up. She went to the potty, marvelous job, uh, a little too zealous. She throws in the pad, flushes the whole thing. It all comes up. I mean, it's a, a sewage disaster in there. I, I have to go clean it up. I'm mopping and wiping and the whole thing. And my wife, whenever anything happens like that, it's presumed to be my fault. Maybe it is, but she's, Rich, you got to talk to her. What did she do? you got to talk to her. So I'm cleaning up, cleaning up. I finally come out. I get her on my knee. And we're going to have this great you know, father-daughter uh, moment. And I'm like, honey, what did you do? She said, Daddy, I did something ill-considered. <laughs> so, I, I, I should also say, you know, as, as Jeff mentions, I, I, I did call him you know, a month or so ago, whatever it was, how about a discussion of originalism? And he's like, well, why don't you, do you want to do it, Rich? And I was like, it's not really my area, but if you have another generalist, I, I'd be happy to, to do it. What I meant by that, you know, I write a 650-word column about the Supreme Court or some legal matter like once every six months. And I did not mean other journalists to either cover the Supreme Court or a large part of their work has to do with the, with the Supreme Court. So this is why it's very important to pay attention to the text and the particular words of things that, that are written down or, or said to you. But it's a delight to be here. Um, wonderful day, wonderful institution. And Jeff, thanks for all, all that you do. So I would say the Constitution is the original deal. It is the basis of our republic. And the founders wrote it down for a reason, because it was the deal. We weren't going to have a British system. We were going to have a system based on written law that was meant to be adhered to. And I can read you all sorts of stirring, eloquent quotes from Madison, from Hamilton, from Adams, from Washington in the farewell letter, you know, where he says, 
You, you can come up with another constitution, you can come up with another system, but until you do, this one, um, uh, loyalty to this one is a matter of sacred obligation. So it's the, it's the deal. It's, it's what we're supposed to um, adhere to, unless you want to have a revolution, which you, know, you can do. There's a, there's a right to revolution if there's some great injustice. There is not. And, and some people argue, well, why, why are we beholden to this quote unquote dead hand of the Constitution. Well, one, every generation is beholden to the, the choices made by prior generations. That's just reality. And the fact is, if we you know, overthrew the Constitution and had a revolution, um, would the next generation be better off? Um, it, would, would it have a choice of having a stable Constitution again? Well, maybe not. It would have been determined by the choice of the prior institution. And just getting bequeathed to you a stable Constitution, even if it's not a very good one, and I would argue ours is, is a wonderful benefit. There's a, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute named Walter Burns who told the story years ago how he went to a uh, conference on written constitutions in South America and he was the keynote speaker and someone from Brazil got up and said, wait a minute, why is the American giving the keynote address on constitutions? Brazil's had 10 constitutions and they've just had one. <laughs> but, but that's the point, right? That's the point. Now there, there are arguments about how you go about originalism, there are arguments about uh, whether originalist judges are actually true to their creed. Um, th this is inherent, again, to human nature. You can have disagreements, uh, but just because you have disagreements does not mean there's not an answer, right? A correct answer, or you shouldn't try to discern a correct answer. If I say you know, January 6th was a wonderful day, it was a peaceful protest where everyone just sort of waved in uh, by Capitol Police, not that anyone would ever say that, but if, if someone actually, if I actually said that and Emily said no, it was a violent day and they, they beat up uh, police officers and broke in to the Capitol, you wouldn't say, oh, there's an argument. No one's right, right? You use your, your reason and, you, and your facts to, to come down the best uh, that you could. And I'll just leave you with a, a prudential argument. If, um, if you're a centrist or on, on the left so, um, side of the spectrum, there might be times throughout our, our course history where you say, I want them to do their personal preferences. I want them to look at the circumstances of the time, not be overly, uh, overly adhere to the text. Just come up with they, what they think is the best answer. You do not want that to happen right now. You do not want that to happen right now. Because I, I guarantee you, probably for most public policy matters, you have five votes for what I want personally to happen on any given policy. And they could just impose it. I think that was wrong. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. So even if it's imperfect originalism, you want those justices adhering to something beyond just uh, their personal views. And again, you may argue they're, they're not being 100% uh, pure uh, originalist, but you w want them to adhere to something, what they're supposed to adhere to, and the best thing to adhere to is the original public meaning of the Constitution. Thank you so much for that. Emily Bazelon, what is originalism and should judges follow it? So luckily, I don't think we have only a choice between originalism and revolution. And one of the reasons I don't think that is that the framers of the Constitution didn't say anything about how they thought the Constitution should be interpreted. And originalism dates from the 1980s. It is a theory that a law professor at Yale, Robert Bork, came up with largely in response to Roe versus Wade as a way of limiting the power of the court um, to, as Rich says, make things up. 
Um, but this is not necessarily, it is absolutely not the only methodological move the court can make. Um, and in fact, for many years, the court didn't define or really think in these terms at all. So how is that possible? Well, one reason it's possible is that there are at least two different levels of generality in which the Constitution's written, right? So nobody really argues about really clear phrases, like how many senators we elect, though maybe they screwed that up. But we, are, that's, we abide by that. It's very clear. When you start talking about phrases like free speech or you know, once you have Reconstruction and the 14th Amendment, equal protection, then you're talking about phrases that are, by their nature, capacious. They lend themselves to different interpretations, perhaps at different moments of time. And the court pretty naturally read different meanings of those kinds of words at different eras in a way that allowed the Constitution to maintain stability and provide all the benefits that Rich is talking about, but that didn't cement it in a meaning in a moment of time that is utterly exclusive, right? So if the Constitution, the words in it mean only what they meant at the time that they were written, then the Constitution's meaning can only reflect the will of the very small number of people who were able to participate at that point in our democracy, right? That leaves out me, for example, and some other people in this room. Um, and it leaves out all the ways in which society has changed since then. Um, in a way that I think you know, can create some really poor outcomes. And I'll get a chance, if necessary, to go into some of those later. Um, and I'm sure Stephen will have thoughts as well. The second problem is this idea of preventing judges and justices from inflicting their personal preferences on all of us. If I thought originalism was consistent and actually constrained judges in any kind of true, real, comprehensive way, I would have intellectual respect for it, even if I still disagreed with its outcomes, but it does not. So for example, and there are many examples of this, um, the Supreme Court takes Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s, this really important case about school desegregation. And Justice Black is on the court at the time, and he's the first justice who thought in originalist terms, even though that wasn't really a full theory at the time yet. And he asked the lawyers, the plaintiffs, the NAACP, all these civil rights lawyers to go look and find him historical evidence that when, um, during Reconstruction, the 14th Amendment was written, there was a basis to think that the people who wrote it intended to end school desegregation. So they looked really hard, all these really smart people, and they couldn't find that historical evidence. In fact, they found the opposite. It was really pretty clear that the drafters of the 14th Amendment did not intend at all to desegregate American schools. And if you think about the country in 1867, that makes a lot of sense. So in the end, Brown versus Board is unanimous from the court, and it's based on very modern, at the time, sociological evidence about the consequences of school segregation, which were really bad for kids. The court, including Justice Black, figured out that it was really important to think about the impact of school segregation and to think about what equality and equal protection, these really important promises and guarantees in our Constitution, made in light of those facts. Um, there, as far you know, Justice Scalia, who was the kind of first originalist um, to talk in those terms on the court, he's never backtracked from 
Brown. That is not part of originalist thinking, that you're going to go so far as to say that um, the Constitution doesn't bar school segregation. There are a bunch of other examples like that in the jurisprudence where conservative justices are absolutely following their personal preferences. Sometimes they do it by just not picking originalism on that day. So what's the point of having a theory if you don't have to follow it all the time? And sometimes they do it by coming up with really problematic, bad historical interpretation. When you look, for example, at um, the case that said, for the first time in American history, um, though less than 20 years ago, that there's an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, all of the opinions are about the original public meaning of, those, of the words, the right to bear arms, to carry arms, what did everyone mean? Justice Stevens, for the liberals, is also engaging in this discourse. The historians thought that Justice Stevens had the better of the argument. When you look at the brief from constitutional historians, they're saying, no, there is no individual right to bear arms. This really is about a militia and a misplaced comma or an extra comma. But the conservatives wanted to get to this individual right to bear arms, and so they claimed in the name of originalism to be doing that. There are lots of other examples of that. And so when you have a theory that so much leaves out um, our evolution, our societal changes, and also many of the people who now live in the United States, and that also is not applied in any consistent manner by the people who are claiming that it limits them, I just can't see how we can argue that this is something that courts should adopt, or even that it's like necessarily real in terms of how it functions, as opposed to the theory behind it. Thank you so much for that. Well, thanks to Rich and Emily for joining the debate so well. Elon, just to review where we are now, uh, without fussing much about what originalism is, and in your book you talk about the fact that there are different varieties of it, um, Rich and Emily are disagreeing about uh, whether it should be adopted. And Rich argued that originalism is, uh, ensures that the text um, is followed, it provides stability, the text has democratic legitimacy uh, because of its popular ratification, and to abandon it frees judges up to make stuff up and do whatever they like. And Emily said that uh, the text doesn't always have democratic legitimacy when it was ratified uh, but, uh, in ways that excluded uh, large groups and that uh, the methodology doesn't constrain judges because when it leads to outcomes they don't like, as in Brown, they abandon it or pick and choose among uh, methodologies in order to reach preferred outcomes. So um, uh, which side do you agree with and why do you believe <laughs> that judges should adopt uh, an originalist methodology? I should have brought a notepad to keep track of all the issues. <laughs> don't, don't mess this uh, up, Elon. Don't, so, don't I know, let, don't you don't down. get to have a notepad. <laughs> no, no, no. It's OK. Um, so I guess I want to start with a little bit of framing, and then I'll address uh, the Brown v. Board question. Why should we be originalist? Uh, I think uh, Rich Lowry is, is largely correct. I would just put, I would frame the question a bit differently. I mean, first of all, what is originalism? I mean, it's this idea that we should interpret the Constitution with this original meaning, right? With the meaning the words would have had to the framers who wrote it and to the public that ratified it. Hopefully, they're not too different um, from, from each other. But I think originalism is actually, it stands for a much more fundamental proposition than that. Originalism stands for the proposition that there are distinctions between what the law is, what the law ought to be, and whether the law is nevertheless binding. And here's what I mean by that. Now, this is how we actually think of other laws in our legal system, like a contract or a statute or a treaty. Usually we first ask, 
okay, what does this contract or statute actually say? What does it mean? What does it do? What kind of legal effect does it have? Now, once we figure that out, it may turn out that we entered into a bad business deal, or maybe, shocker, Congress has enacted a bad law. But very much an integral part of our legal system is that we are nevertheless bound, even by the bad contracts that we've properly entered into, just as we're bound even by Congress's bad laws. Why are we bound by Congress's bad laws? Well, because in our system, we the people, as a general matter, as a matter of social facts, agree that the process through which those laws are enacted are sufficient to confer legitimacy on the laws as a whole, even those that we don't like, because we're not always going to win in the political process. My point here is there is a difference between what a legal text means and the legal effect that it has, and whether that legal text is binding and should be treated as our law. So I think ultimately, the debate between originalism and non-originalism isn't about original public meaning. Right? Even in a, in a non-originalist system, something is going to get its original public meaning, namely the judicial opinions posted on the internet in PDF files every Monday and Thursday. Right? When a government official or a private actor reads an opinion which tells you what you can do, what you can't do, what you may do, what you must do, you don't say, well, is the court being ironic? Is it being poetic? Right? These are legal texts. They're not Socratic dialogues. Okay? They're not poems. They're not novels. They're sets of instructions. We interpret them with their original public meaning. Okay? Otherwise, they would be ineffective as instructions. The debate is entirely whether we should treat as law the document under the glass at the National Archives or the documents published in PDF file in Monday and Thursday on the Supreme Court website. That is a normative question that we, the people, today can only answer as a matter of present-day social facts, whether we think we should continue to be bound by the Constitution of our founders as it has been lawfully amended and corrected. This is largely the argument, by the way, of my book, <laughs> A Debt Against the Living. Uh, and so, in the book, I, you know, the, the question is, what, what are the criteria that make a constitution binding? Because it's not the same thing as what makes ordinary laws binding. Truly, truly, in a nutshell, I think the argument is, for a free society like ours, a constitution to be binding and legitimate has to meet this threshold success in balancing self-government and liberty, which are in tension with each other, right? even if it's imperfect. Because remember, something must make a constitution binding. Right? But it can't be that the Constitution is only binding if it says everything you personally would want it to say. Something must make a Constitution binding in light of the inevitable disagreements people are going to have over its particulars. Right? This is a threshold success in balancing self-government and liberty. And I argue you know, uh, in the book, and I can say more later, that our Constitution largely meets that criteria, even if it's imperfect uh, by your lights. Now, maybe I wouldn't think that. right? if we didn't have the second founding, right, on Reconstruction. Because if it's true, Always be selling, people. Yeah, Always yeah, be selling. Yeah. I, Cambridge would be very upset with me if I didn't at least show it once, right? Um, and so in this, you know, this book, you know, it's, it's much easier to defend the founding since we're actually living under the second founding, maybe even the third founding, right, if you include the 19th Amendment. If the Constitution hadn't plugged, we hadn't plugged those great defects after the Civil War, then, you know, it would be, be a different story, I think. But it did. And I actually think the originalist case for Brown v. Board uh, uh, is actually a pretty straightforward one. Uh, I can't explain why. I mean, I have theories about why the Warren court responded the way it did to the history at the time. But it's actually a pretty straightforward case. Um, 
under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which the 14th Amendment says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. It's an equality provision with respect to civil rights. We can get into that a bit later. I think it's actually uh, pretty clear. But in terms of the history, when you actually look at the 39th Congress, only two Republicans, advocates of the Reconstruction Amendments, said something about how it wouldn't apply to schools and school desegregations. No one responded to that. No one otherwise made a comment about that. And when they were debating school desegregation and what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1875, all but one Republican who had been there said that the 14th Amendment required school desegregation. And the, the reason it never became law was because the Democrats won in a landslide in uh, 1874, preventing that from becoming law. So I think there's a lot stronger original evidence for at least Brown v. Board. Uh, thank you so much for that. Thank you for um, I'll put these away. bringing your <laughs> books, which well deserve to be read. And I mentioned to you that uh, in the constitutional law class that I taught yesterday at GW Law, um, a student brought up your books as definitive guides to originalism without knowing that you'd be here today. They're, they're absolutely uh, clarifying. Um, Steve Maisie, uh, you, uh, you heard Ilan Worman's defense of originalism as being connected to the legitimacy of a binding text and saying that even if it's imperfect, once the text is enacted, it has to be construed according to its original public meaning in order to have the status of continuing law. And he also gave an originalist defense of Brown. I, I, just uh, why don't you begin, uh, Emily Bazelon also argued that Brown was not consistent with original understanding. And indeed, not only did uh, people stand up in Congress at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified and said, don't worry, this won't apply to schools. But they also didn't desegregate the uh, schools of Washington, D.C. And broadly, they thought that only civil rights were covered by the anti-discrimination protection, and they didn't think schools were a civil right. So are you persuaded or not by Elon's uh, effort to defend Brown on originalist grounds? And then more broadly, uh, what is your response to his claim that in order for the Constitution to have binding status as law, it must be interpreted in terms of its original public meaning. Well, I should say that even before Ilan brought his book to show it to us, I ordered it a few days ago. I haven't been able to read it yet. I look forward to ordering. And as long as you bought it. Books also. <laughs> yes, I, I paid it. good, good money for it. Right <laughs> yes, um, but uh, just as a kind of framing, it's important to know, I think, or to think about the distinction between originalism as a theory which has been expounded upon by law professors now for decades. And interestingly, maybe curiously, it has evolved into many different forms, some of which are not recognizable, I think, to the original originalists. <laughs> and it's you know given that originalism puts such a premium on fixity and stability, uh, it's it's interesting just how much it has changed. There's even a blog devoted to originalism, which has new things going up every day. So it's a very active and, um, and changing and fertile ground for legal research and legal thinking. There's that. And then there is what the Supreme Court is doing. And whatever its virtues in the abstract, originalism as a doctrine as an interpretive theory on the Supreme Court today, I think is best described <laughs> as an engine for legal change, an engine for significant and sweeping legal change. And this past term that ended in June, um, maybe that engine should be described as turbocharged, 
right? It is, there are changes to the law being made by the current Supreme Court that are thoroughgoing and rapid and across many areas of, of law. So I know we will disagree on the outcomes of these cases, but from my point of view, there were two religion cases decided this term that effectively pulverized the wall of separation between church and state. There are a few bricks left, but not a whole lot. Uh, the Second Amendment has been fundamentally rethought, expanded, uh, and of course, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but abortion rights, uh, which were a constitutional fact for 50, almost 50 years, have been thrown out the window. And all those changes happened in the course of a few days. So whatever the virtues of originalism, I think they do not include uh, nourishing uh, the judicial virtues of judicial restraint, of judicial modesty, humility. Um, it's any objective observer who's looking at what the Supreme Court is doing is not going to see a modest or um, a slow-moving Supreme Court. And the, the slowness of justice at the court is important to its work, and it's even engraved into the structures of the court. Um, I'm very happy to hear that the court is going to be opening up again to the public after two and a half years. Uh, if you go there if, and you look carefully, you'll find turtles engraved into <laughs> the supports of the lampposts on the plaza outdoors. And you'll also see turtles peering down at you from the hallways if you go inside. Those turtles represent the slow, steady justice that the Supreme Court is supposed to be, um, or is meant uh, to be pursuing. And originalism, as it's being practiced by the current majority, is not doing that. Um, so just one, one more word about nomenclature. Originalism is a great term for people who are originalists, right? It has a great ring to it. Um, the, the kids call it the, the OG, right? The, this is the original, this is the, the, the heart of things. We should return to it. <laughs> the other side, what is the other theory? It's called non-originalism. Is there a worse <laughs> name for a theory in the history of names, right? Walking, marching under a flag that says, I'm not for this. <laughs> uh, it has been called living constitutionalism also, although I think not a lot of non-originalists call themselves living constitutionalists today because it seems a bit too freewheeling. Um, ultimately, what I think the main distinction is between originalist judges and non-originalist judges, to keep using those terms since they're the ones that people use, is not that one side looks at text and history and the other doesn't. So it really is not this great divide. Justices like Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, they're concerned with the text. They're often concerned with history, too. It's just that they don't rivet on one particular conception of what the Constitution meant at a particular frozen point in time as the only thing that they look to. So um, Justice Breyer, uh, both in his, in his books and in his ju judicial opinions, is clear that he, has a, he takes in multiple sources when he's deciding hard cases. He looks at text and history, and he also considers context, precedent, which is something that originalists, the more originalists you are, the less you seem interested in precedent and respecting it. 
and also things that um, originalists will be allergic to, which are uh, purposes of the law and of provisions of the Constitution and consequences, right? What are the consequences of the decision that are going to be rendered uh, that will follow from the decision that is rendered? And so I think maybe, I don't know, we need a, like a liberal Frank Luntz to come up with a better <laughs> name for non-originalism. Uh, but I think from a clarity point of view, the two theories are maybe better described as monism and pluralism, mm -hmm. right? Looking only at one thing, which is the original public meaning of the Constitution, or looking at that plus these other factors that go into a judge and usually a justice making a decision about what the Constitution means. Thank you so much for that. And I, I'm just going to sum it up to keep it, uh, the arguments uh, straight in my head and so I can repeat them back. Uh, you said that although originalism was originally justified as a way of constraining judges and deferring to democratic legislatures, it hasn't done that at all and has left judges free both to um, choose among methodologies and also to uh, radically change the law. Um, and you also said that the alternative to originalism is not uh, abandoning it because all justices, including Justices Kagan and Breyer, as you noted, have said we're all originalists now in the sense of caring about text, history, and tradition. But you said they also embrace other methodologies like pragmatism, prudence, um, uh, precedent, uh, which uh, more accurately constrain judges and uh, are consistent with what courts have ordinarily done. Okay, rather than, this is a great conversation, rather than a formal debate, but Rich, uh, I think we've very well put on the table uh, what originalism is, and you've made a case for why it should be adopted, and you've heard the case for um, the claim that the court is adopting it in an inconsistent and results-oriented way, and that it should take a broader approach. Maybe let's focus on the recent decisions of the court, in particular, those involving the Second Amendment, abortion, uh, religion, and the administrative state, and tell us why you think those decisions are originalists and are correct. Yeah, so first of all, uh, Tamley's point that you know, no one at the beginning called themselves originalists, they didn't have to. It was just taken as a, as a given. And it was when the court moved away from that sort of understanding that you had the, the, um, the, the countervailing push, no, the, the text and the public meaning are the main thing. And few originalists on the court, with the exception perhaps of Clarence Thompson, just say no, Precedent doesn't matter and can totally be ignored. You know, Amy Comey Barrett, prior to going on the court, thought about precedent and wrote about it extensively. Kavanaugh has as well. But the main thing is the public meeting. That's the first thing you go to. And just think about it. Is there any other element of law where we wouldn't say that? You know, statutes written by Congress, they're just suggestions and they change over time. Or contracts that writers have with their publishers, they can be capaciously uh, um, uh, interpreted depending on uh, circumstances. No, it's written down, it's written law for a reason. And that, if that's true of anything, it should be through, true of the fundamental law. Now, the particular cases, so Heller and the Second Amendment, there was a, a brief parenthesis in uh, American legal history where the meaning of the Second Amendment was lost and forgotten and obscured about 50 years in the middle of the 20th century. Everyone at the time, knew it protected an individual right to bear arms. They knew it before the adoption of the Constitution, during the convention, and afterwards. Every major legal commentary, next 50 years, Joseph Story, others, individual right 
to bear arms. One of the most infamous non-originalist decisions in, in the uh, history of the country, Dred Scott, what's Taney say? One, one of the reasons that African-Americans shouldn't have citizenship, you know what? You give them citizenship, they're going to be able to carry around guns whenever they want, and no one's going to do it because it was taken for granted that that's what the Second Amendment said. And th for whatever reason, this, this was lost. And the original excavation that went on was not like an NRA plot. It was liberal scholars, Sanford Levinson, Lawrence Tribe, who began to look at it and say, you know what? For whatever reason, we've ignored this, and we've lost touch with its original meaning. You look at Lawrence Tribe's uh, textbooks, 1978, Second Amendment is a footnote. I, I might be wrong about the exact dates. By 2000, there's a section. It is an individual right. So if, if you're the court and you're looking at the evidence and believe it's correct, as you should, it is correct, what are you supposed to do? Oh, we've been wrong all along. We always leave wrong opinions on the books and impinge on people's individual constitutional rights just if we were wrong and prior courts said so. No. You know, the, the court, as of 2020, I think it overturned 232 decisions. It never leaves just things on the books that, that are wrongly decided. So the court made the, the correct uh, decision in Heller, and then Brown, uh, Braun this time around was just a natural extension of that. Same thing with, with Roe. Uh, you, you had, again, uh, I might sound like a Lawrence Tribe fan. Even Lawrence Tribe was saying at the time, I don't see where the, where the constitutional warrant is for this decision. And Roe was unstable, so unstable as a precedent. In 1992, the Supreme Court totally on the fly rewrote it because there's no clear warrant for it. It's making it up as it goes. And, and that um, Casey decision, the court talked about, you know, we're going to settle this. We have such authority and legitimacy. We're going to settle this hotly contested moral and social issue. And that just never works out. And, it, and unless it's, you know, if it's a right written in the Constitution, yes. If it's not, you just can't make it up because it's your social preference. So you, again, this goes to what Stephen was pointing to um, legitimately. You know, there are prudential questions, right? How fast does the turtle crawl, <laughs> right? Uh, how fast does the turtle move? Roberts is like, no, we're just moving to 15 weeks. You know, and politically, that would be much better for Republicans. I mean, they're getting murdered on the issue right now. But it's not the, the role of the court to come up with, with a viable political compromise. That's for political branches and the American people to do. So the correct answer was, no, this goes to the elected bodies. And they debate it and argue about it. And look, it'll be intense. Um, it'll be fierce. It'll be rambunctious. That's what a democratic society is. And to the extent it can, as long as it's not involving you know, violations of the, the structure of government that are quite fundamental, as long as it's not violating fundamental rights, the court should let that kind of debate happen. And our constitutional system allows it. You have California, which is governed radically differently than New York, uh, sorry, than Texas. And as long as they're not you know, infringing on free speech rights and the rest of it, that's fine and that's how it should work. Uh, thanks so much for that. Uh, Emily, Rich mentioned abortion and guns and said that uh, the court has correctly interpreted both uh, decisions in line with the original understanding. Um, do you agree or disagree? And, and how consistent do you think the court has been in applying originalism in other major hot button issues? So on the Second Amendment 
case, it is true that Sandy Levinson and Larry Tribe were talking about an individual right to bear arms in a kind of academic, like, well, this is an interesting idea to explore way. Um, and I think they would both, well, I don't know, maybe this is true. I would hope they would admit that they maybe didn't do a lot of deep historical research when they talked about that and kind of put that idea um, on the wall. Since then, there's been a lot more research, and the um, view of most constitutional historians is what I said before. And there's this recent, um, I guess, archive would be one way to think of it that supports that view. A couple of different institutions put together this huge collection of documents from the relevant period, 1780 to 1785 or 89 you know, old newspapers and books and documents of people writing letters to each other, all the way in with the ways in which we would look to see what the meanings of these words are. Now, you know, I will just continue to, to call myself a pluralist um, in Stephen's helpful uh, way of thinking about this. I'm not sure I think this is how, the oh, certainly not the only way we should be thinking about the Second Amendment, but let's just forget that for a second. Here is this huge, um, box of source material about the meaning at the time. And even conservative scholars who've studied this, who very much support the outcome of an individual right to bear arms and would like to side with Scalia in his historical analysis from the time, are super skeptical after they look at these, that the source material because there are actually very few references to any kind of individual right to bear arms in the source material from the time. Has, have the conservatives in the Supreme Court changed their view of the Second Amendment based on the source material or even mentioned it? No, they haven't. They don't care because they got to the outcome that interests them. Um, that's the sort of biggest, um, I think, problem with this theory, again, is that it just doesn't actually bind the people who claim to be bound. Abortion is a tricky one, I think, for liberals in that it rests on these foundations of a right to privacy that are hard to justify in the text itself in that part of the 14th Amendment. The people who were wrestling with those questions in the 1970s, all of the men on the Supreme Court, were not particularly receptive to a much kind of more, I think, clear path to a constitutional right for abortion, which runs through the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment and says that gender is a kind of basis that is really important to have equality for. This was a critique that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg started to mount in the 1980s. It worried her. She never had a majority on the Supreme Court to kind of take the right to have an abortion and firmly anchor it in the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. And so you have this vulnerability. But then if you look at the court's opinions in Dobbs this last term, what you see is Justice Alito from the majority saying that because supposedly of originalism, um, the right to abortion has to be only analyzed in terms of our history and tradition. And so you have him going back um, and looking at judges from um, Britain from hundreds of years ago who believed in witchcraft. And those are his beginning source material if you're only going to do this originalist analysis. So there's this kind of way in which the um, conservatives and liberals, when you look at what's actually on the page in Supreme Court opinions about, about abortion, they're almost arguing past each other because the firm, more originalist, I would argue, basis, which I think is very much rooted in the text, isn't really a part of the jurisprudence. And 
just again to hopefully um, make this point clear, the point is not that you set aside the text, right? Of course that doesn't make any sense. Of course the Constitution is our law. The question is how you interpret the phrases in it. Judges always have those problems when people write in more sweeping terms, right? It is much easier to know what contractual language says when it's super clear and it's about things like dates and proper nouns and numbers than when people put phrases in it that can have different kinds of meanings. Those are the parts of the Constitution we're talking about. They don't come up all the time in law, right? Somewhere, something like 90% of what federal judges do are not affected by these debates we're having up here because they're interpreting much more clear language. A lot of it's statutory, not constitutional. They can do something called law that really feels different from politics. Unfortunately for us, I think, it's these incredibly hot button sensitive um, issues that really do in the end come down to choices of values that are affected by these debates over interpretive methodology in the Constitution. Um, and, and that has created this, because the Supreme Court has decided in Marbury that it was the final word on the Constitution, that put this pressure, I think, on conservatives to come up with this claim that their hands were bound um, that just doesn't really pan out in the everyday. And I think that's the gap Stephen was talking about to some degree between the kind of more abstract um, academic definition and, and idea of originalism that, originalism that Elon worked out for us here and what we actually see happening all the time in court, which is super different. Thank you very much for that. Ilan, let's focus on the application of originalism in the Second Amendment cases, because both Emily and Stephen are saying this is a powerful example of the current court not being consistent originalists. And as Emily just said, even after all this evidence by historians showing what the original understanding of the right to bear arms was, Justice Breyer said to the majority in the McDonald case, hey, why don't you reconsider your historical analysis? And they just ignored it. They refused to do so. And more recently, in the Bruin case from New York, the liberal dissenters are saying to the conservatives, you are picking and choosing among history, tradition, and text in order to jerry-rig the result. J Justice Kagan basically accused the majority of playing whack-a-mole with text and history um, and, and shifting the baseline uh, for results-oriented reason. Uh, what's your response? I plead the Fifth Amendment. Is that an <laughs> option? Uh, I'm going to get in trouble with some friends, I presume. What's your interpretation of that uh, amendment? <laughs> <laughs> There's only one correct interpretation. No, uh, well, uh, so I do not think the Supreme Court has been originalists in any of the four areas that you've described. That doesn't mean the results in the cases would be different, but they might be. And it's a bit hard to know. Um, now, you might not be surprised to learn that the answer to three of the four buckets of cases, Bruin, Dobbs, uh, the free exercise cases, is the privileges or immunities clause, which perhaps unsurprisingly is my sort of area of scholarship. Uh, but uh, just to explain both what I mean by this, uh, these cases are substantive due process cases. Okay? We have a clause that says, um, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What does this sound like? It sounds like the state can, in fact, take away your life, your liberty, and your property as long as it gives you due process of law, whatever that is. The law is established by the legislature. Your violation of the law is adjudicated in a court according to fair procedures, and so on. But otherwise, there's no substantive limit on the content of the law prohibiting whatever conduct. Okay? 
That's due, a procedural understanding. Substantive due process, right? Substance process. Isn't this already like you the should be on the edge of, of your seat? The opposite of originalism, seats. really bad branding. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So even, even liberals accept that substantive due process is sort of this made up uh, contradiction. It's this idea that due, due process clause isn't merely about process, but also imposes substantive and unwritten limits on state legislative power. Substantive due process is clearly wrong, okay, as a matter of the original meaning. Uh, yet, free exercise cases, uh, the Bruin Second Amendment case, which in court, right, we're dealing with the Bill of Rights as applied to the states through the 14th Amendment, substantive due process, and Roe v. Wade, unenumerated rights. These are all substantive due process cases, and they were all decided as substantive due process cases. The Supreme Court in Dobbs accepted substantive due process. They just said, look, if we're going to do substantive due process, how do we rein in the judicial role? Well, we should focus on those rights deeply rooted in American history and tradition so judges don't just get uh, to make things up. Whether they can still make things up doing that historical analysis right, is open to question. Whether the answers would change depends on the privileges or immunities clause. right? Maybe, maybe it wouldn't. Again, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. There is a huge scholarly debate uh, over the meaning of this clause, right? Uh, one possibility is that substantive due process is, is correct after all, just under just the privileges, right? The privileges or immunities clause. What are the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States? Maybe those rights deeply rooted in American history and what does it mean to abridge them? So, so maybe Dobbs come out, comes out the same way, but, but, but maybe not. It turns out actually that the privileges or immunities clause is probably the Constitution's equality provision. Right, that the states have wide berth to regulate all rights, contract, property, gun rights, speech rights, search and seizure rights. They just can't discriminate in the provision of those rights. What is an abridgment? Well, the black codes were an abridgment, right? The codes enacted in the South after abolition that said uh, the newly freed people can't own property, right? That they couldn't enter to certain kinds of contracts, that they couldn't assemble at certain hours with certain people, right? Nothing that applied to, to white persons. That's an, an abridgment. It gives a lesser abridged set of rights to a class of people arbitrarily. Okay, well, if that's true, then I don't think you have incorporation of the Bill of Rights. I think it means California can ban handguns. It just, I don't think California can say only white people are allowed to have guns. That's an abridgment. All right? The question is, what's the regulation of a content of a right? It has to be reasonably related to the purpose of the right. Skin color has nothing to do with contract rights, property rights. Being gay, saying gay people can't own property, has nothing to do with property rights. Right? It doesn't, you, you don't have to be a protected class. Okay? It's just totally, it's just as bad as uh, the, the black codes, a, a law like that. Right? Okay, how would Bruin come out? Right? Let's go back to McDonald. Right? Uh, is the Second Amendment incorporated against the state? If you look at the liberal justices in dissent in city of Chicago v. McDonald, where the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states, they say, it's, look at the history. It's all about equality, equality, equality. Yes, they were right. The liberals were right. The problem is they only wanted to apply that argument to the particular right, the Second Amendment, that they didn't like, right? rather than to all the other rights that would be implicated by that reading, like free speech right, and free uh, um, you know, search and seizure rights or, or, or what have you. So how would Bruin come out? Well, I don't think the Second Amendment is incorporated. I think the state can uh, regulate and define gun rights as long as it isn't discriminatory. Might Bruin have come out the same way anyway? Maybe, because the licensing regime was so open-ended. It basically <laughs> said you get a public carry license if you have a special need. Well, who has a special need? The politically powerful, the politicians, the very rich and famous, 
right? Uh, they all got their gu guns. So it sounds like an abridgment. It sounds like class legislation. One code for rich people, one code uh, for uh, the poorer classes. And so it might have come out the same way, but we don't know. Same thing, free exercise. Whose religion has been prohibited, right? Nor uh, the free, okay, so Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, um, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The coach who was not allowed to pray on the football field, has anyone prohibited his free exercise of his religion by saying, you know, on a football field in a public school after football practice, you can't pray? I don't think so. Has anyone's religious practices been prohibited when the state gives public monies to a private secular school? Of course not. You can still go to church. You can still believe in your God. You can... These are totally non-originalist cases. Whether that violates the privileges or immunities clause is the real question that no one seems to want to answer. I've been accused before of being scholastic. The Supreme Court's <laughs> never going to do any of this. Right? But that's the virtue of being an academic is we get paid just the same. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Stephen, I, uh, I, the, the last uh, substantive intervention is to you, and you just heard Elon Worman, one of the most distinguished young conservative intellectuals, plead the fifth, if not plead guilty, to the idea that the court is not applying originalism in a consistent way. He says it might be done better. Um, what do you want to tell the audience, because both sides are trying to persuade the audience about whether or not to adopt originalism, um, is, is the answer that uh, justices should just be better originalist, or should uh, do you have an alternative, a more pluralistic alternative, that you think might better constrain judges and defend democratic legitimacy than originalism? I don't know if I'm equipped to lay out a full theory of interpretation. Solve the whole thing. Come on, you have five minutes. How many do we have? We have seven because Emily yeah. must get you to the station. You've got to leave some time for us to conclude. And exactly at three. <laughs> I want to say a couple of things about Bruin. I thought that would be a good point of discussion for this panel. So on the train ride down yesterday, I pulled it out again, and it's 100 and some pages. And I read the whole thing slowly. I read the whole thing very quickly on June 23rd when it came out because I had an article to write and a podcast and a TV spot. But then I realized I didn't really soak the whole thing up. So I'm going to put on my charitable hat. I'm going to read through Justice Thomas's opinion. And it was very hard to get through that opinion without concluding, even trying to be as charitable as I could, that he was not playing whack-a-mole, cherry-picking history that suited his favorite result. And we know what his favorite result is because since 2008, when Heller came down, he has been writing opinion after opinion after opinion, decrying the court's failure to take up cases that would expand Heller, expand the Second Amendment further. So June 23rd was his birthday. This was a great birthday present for him uh, to be able to write this opinion. It also happens to be my birthday, so I got to enjoy, I could share in, in the joy. Um, <laughs> But reading that opinion again, he has a line that says, not all history is created equal. Fine. So some history applies more, tells you more about the original public meaning than other history. But then as he goes through, he looks at medieval history and says, oh, that's much too old. That doesn't really apply to the meaning of the Second Amendment when it was ratified in, in 1791. Um, so there is evidence of. The Treaty of North, uh, the Statute of, of Northampton, which was uh, a British law that said that um, subjects could be limited from going about um, going was in it, villages. Was it Northampton or Southampton? It was Northampton. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Martha's Vineyard, maybe? <laughs> uh, anyway, this law 
was from the 14th century, but it lasted for centuries. And Justice Thomas didn't think too much of that, and he also didn't think too much of New York's citation of many other laws from various periods around the founding, right before the Civil War, right after the Civil War, that were similar to, in some ways, the New York law that was under attack. But each time he had a way to say, oh no, it's, it's subtly different. It's not, the analogy is not perfect. So by the time you reach the end of that opinion, your nose has been buried in you know, centuries of, of purported examples from New York that show that there is a history of gun regulation that's similar to what New York has been doing since 1911. That's another aspect of it. Uh, but the result is without any analysis of current society in America, of the scourge of gun violence that we have, just no, we've never had anything like this, so we can't have it now. Whereas Justice Breyer, and now I'm getting to the uh, pluralistic uh, version of, of an interpretive theory that might be more suitable, which I think is Justice Breyer's. He looks at the history too, and he says, I think correctly, that Justice Thomas was um, poo-pooing or excluding certain evidence that does weigh in, in New York's favor to keep this law. But also he has, he cites statistics about what guns are doing to America today, right? Between 40 and 50,000 Americans die as a result of gun violence every year. There is a mass shooting in this country every day. Over 100 people die from gun-related injuries every day. And the way that the courts of appeals have dealt with gun regulations since Heller in 2008 has been to say, well, let's see if there's an infringement. And if there is, we need to look at the goal that the state, legisl that the state legislature is trying to achieve with this law. And if it seems like there's a good connection between uh, the means and the end, then maybe we will let it fly. We won't strike it down under the Second Amendment. In Bruin, Justice Thomas says, no more means end analysis. The only way you can justify a regulation is if you can pinpoint something super similar in the history of American gun regulation. So it really, it leaves states, I think the, the implications for New York's gun law might be limited, but for all sorts of other gun regulations, we don't know how this is going to play out. And Justice Barrett had a really interesting concurrence in, in Bruin where she said, I agree with everything except there are two major holes in Justice Thomas's majority opinion. So it's sort of like a teacher saying, I agree with your uh, result here with, with, with your argument, but I'm gonna give you a B on this paper. He didn't actually give lower courts any guidance as to how to undertake this analogical reasoning for what sort of research are you going to do to find if this law is consistent. And there's, uh, there's a case in, in, in the state of Ohio right now at the state Supreme Court involving a man who was convicted of um, under a law that says if you're indicted for a violent crime, you cannot have a gun. So he was indicted, he was indicted for a violent crime. He was flashing his gun around on social media, and he was arrested for that separate crime of having the gun. And now the question is, is that law consistent with the Second Amendment or not? And the state Supreme Court in Ohio ordered more briefing. They said, um, given that Bruin has now come out, 
tell us what impact, if any, this has on our analysis. And there was one judge who dissented from that order for more briefing. And she said two interesting things. One, that uh, this is not that, that a, an appeals court is not the place for that kind of information to be presented. That's an issue of fact. A trial court should consider these facts, and an appeals court should weigh in only later. And she also said something which is more general about originalism as a practice. She said, doing this sort of historiographical work is kind of like determining whether a modern translation of the Bible is consistent with the original meaning of the scripture. And that may not be something that judges are all that equipped to do. And especially lower court judges who have such uh, a huge docket, so much, uh, they have so, so many cases to deal with, to do this archival research and this analogical reasoning just to figure out if a state law to address gun violence is constitutional seems like a really heavy lift that the Supreme Court has bestowed upon all the federal district judges around, around the country. Thank you so much for that. It's precisely three. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our panelists. Today's show was produced by John Guerra, Tanea Tauber, Lana Ulrich, Sam Desai, and Melody Rao. It was engineered by the NCC's superb AV team. Research was provided by Sophia Gardell. We're so grateful to the National Review Institute, which partnered with us in bringing you this program. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager in honor of Constitution Day. Uh, in engaging in constitutional education and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. There's so much learning and light ahead of us uh, this year. And I'm so grateful to all of you for being part of our mission. You can support it by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give it a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, Happy Constitution Day. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.